Welcome to episode 36 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are returning to our Publishing 201 series, and we decided to kind of give you a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at publishing in the sort of like a day-in-the-life-of mm-hmm. kind of way, because Kelly and I were sort of discussing this before we started recording. The tagline, I get paid to read books, is somewhat misleading. <laughs> and by somewhat, we mean very misleading. Yeah. So let's start actually with the agenting side of things, because uh-huh. there's kind of on, aside from the writer side, which obviously a lot of a lot of our listeners are aspiring writers, uh, but some of you I know are looking to break into publishing the industry. So there are two sides. There's the agent side, and then there's the publishing side. So let's give a quick Brief recap of what agents do. I don't know, Kelly, do you want Mm -hmm. to say very quickly what agents do? Sure. Um, Agents represent authors, and so they um, cultivate a list of clients by reading submissions or slush piles, um, as they're sometimes called, uh, to find authors and projects that they want to work with. Once they have extended an offer of representation to an author, then they will oftentimes do a couple of editorial passes with that author. More Mm -hmm. and more often, agents are now doing some preliminary editorial work because uh, publishing is such a crowded and competitive field that before you go on submission, you really want to make sure that the project is as good as you can make it. Not all agents do editorial work, but most of them do nowadays, I think. So after acquiring um, an author for their list, agents will work with that author to get the manuscript in the best possible shape. Then they will brainstorm a submission list, which will usually happen in several rounds. They'll come up with you know, the first round of editors that they want to submit to. They will craft individual submission or pitch letters to those editors. Um, Sometimes, you know, this is done by email or over the phone or sometimes over a lunch meeting. But they will pitch the author's works to a specific amount of editors, however many rounds of submission it takes. Uh, When an offer is made, the agent will negotiate that offer and negotiate the contract on behalf of the author. And then after the contract is all settled, um, the agent doesn't take a backseat exactly, but kind of a side seat. Uh, They facilitate conversations between their authors and their publishers. They oftentimes are handling money that is coming through from the publisher that the agency then takes their commission from and then processes payments um, onto the author. The same thing with royalty statements or any other paperwork that may come through the publisher. Oftentimes it will go through your agency. Sometimes things are set up to 
be split so the author gets their stuff directly and the agency gets their stuff directly. But for some of your larger houses, the agency will still process all that paperwork on your behalf. Um, and so they'll get your tax forms ready and all kinds of things like that. And then there's just day-to-day -day business of trying to figure out your the career plan for the various authors that you have on your list, what their next projects are going to be, what direction you want to take them in, helping to promote your author's work, um, being there to support them at different events and all kinds of stuff. So agents do a lot. Yeah, agents are really agents are there to facilitate business for the writers. Basically, mm -hmm. the agent really should make it as easy as possible for the writer to just write. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you have any problems or issues, the agent is usually the first person you should go to because they are able to be the sort of the kind of the guard dog a little mm -hmm. bit. Like they're able to kind of get in there and get scrappy and, you know, really advocate on your behalf. So on the Internet, you know, you see a lot of agents kind of on Twitter or social media or whatever talking about what they're looking for in their slush piles, what they're looking to represent, what they're looking to query. And it almost leads to this impression that what an agent does in the office all day is read queries and slush, mm. which is not true. No. <laughs> Both Kelly and I have worked at a literary agency. Mm -hmm. Um I was an intern, um, and Kelly has worked subrights, mm -hmm. foreign rights, you know. And what you do on a day-to-day -day basis is basically project management for your clients. Mm -hmm. So, for example, say I have a client list of, let's say I'm just starting out, and there's five clients. I have five clients that I found. And usually the day will probably start off with me you know, checking my emails from the publishers for which I have contacts, any issues that I might that might arise about my uh, clients' books, or any sort of publicity plans that the publisher is putting forward. So, you know, each client, it's not exactly like a one-to-one -one relationship because you are probably one of many clients your mm -hmm. agent is representing. So a lot of this is just project management, taking phone calls, going to lunches. There is, in fact, a lot of lunching in publishing. Mm -hmm. yep. still, Especially in New York. Yep. It is still one of those industries where lunching does, in fact, matter because it's, it's still primarily a business run on relationships. Now, I don't necessarily mean that it's like nepotism kind of way, but in mm -hmm. that the reason agents go to these lunches with these editors is to cultivate a sense of what the editor is looking for on a much more personal level. It's one thing for an editor over email to say, oh, I'm looking for a science fiction manuscript. And then it's another thing to kind of go and talk to the editor over lunch over a meal and just talk about your favorite books, your movies, and you get you start to cultivate a sense of their taste when you get to know them outside the bounds of email. Now, of course, plenty of agents don't live in New York City, but many of them still go to New York once or twice a year and line up all of these lunches to meet up with their editors, to meet up with editors and cultivate their taste. So mm. a good deal of an agent's job is actually being out of the office and meeting people, <laughs> essentially, meeting yeah. people. 
Um, so then where does the time to read the slush come in? That happens on your commute when you're taking the subway to and from work. That happens on weekends. That happens in the evening. Um, very few agents will have the time once they have an established client list. It is a little bit different when you're just starting out and so you're working to acquire your list and then you're doing a lot of reading um, and a lot of, you know, going through queries because you don't have any clients to manage. Well, usually at that stage too, you're assisting an older someone agent. else. Yes. So you're doing so all you the admin work. So you do have someone else's workload. That is true, actually. That's very true. Um, so yeah, so all that time, you know, when you're in the office, the the office hours are spent on those relationships, you know, negotiating contracts, answering emails, making phone calls, doing kind of um, the office hour quote unquote work. And reading is flexible. You can take that with you. You can do that at home. You can download manuscripts onto your e-reader. And so, you know, agenting it and most publishing jobs in general uh, do extend beyond a nine to five. You are taking a lot of your work home with you. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of basically on the agenting side. Obviously, they do plenty of other things. Mm -hmm. Some agencies also work on publicity on their end. Um, and some are less hands-on. It kind of all depends on the agency, on the agent, on the writer, and what he or she is looking from that working relationship. Um. So then uh, on the publishing side, so there are several different paths to working in publishing, and there are definitely several different departments in publishing. Most people think of editorial because mm -hmm. editorial is the most writer-facing part of publishing, um, and it also weirdly seems to be the most glamorous part of publishing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a TV show called Younger, that's about an editor, and I can't watch it because it's so wrong on every level. <laughs> I, just... I haven't watched it, but I have this weird, a special fondness for Hilary Duff, and so oh, I'm me too. I love to her. It. I love her, and I watched a couple of episodes. But the problem is, they get the publishing industry so, so wrong. egregiously wrong that yeah. I'm like, I, this is diminishing my enjoyment of this show because <laughs> I, I can't get over everything that it gets wrong. Um, but yes, so let's start with editorial. I was an editor at a publishing house mm -hmm. and publishing is in some ways, one of the last really old fashioned industries that exist in that there's a sort of apprenticeship mm -hmm. that happens. Everyone who starts at an entry level, it is pretty much absolutely impossible to get into publishing at a higher level aside from entry. This is an industry that you kind of have to learn from the ground up, meaning every usually when you start out and in editorial, you are an editorial assistant, meaning you are assisting another editor with their workload. Mm -hmm. So what this generally means, depending on the relationship you have with the editor you're assisting, could mean anything from scheduling their meetings and lunches to kind of doing a preliminary pass on their manuscripts that they've acquired um, reading their boss's submission list to kind of call mm. it for them. Um, 
writing editorial letters as well for and it, it again it all depends kind of the relationship the editor has to his or her assistant some just need an admin kind of a person others yeah. are looking more for a collaborative partner but the longer you are in editorial the you know the more freedom you have to start to acquire and build your own list sometimes you will get kind of like your boss will buy a project and then give it to you and to kind of facilitate your first buy, you know, they're the ones with the, the name and the power behind it. So they can more easily buy the project and then they will have the, their assistant edit it. But again, like agenting, all of the submission reading is done at home on your spare time during your commutes at lunch, during dinner. And the same thing with the actual editing. So what do we do in publishing all day? And it's basically meetings. Yeah. <laughs> meetings all the live long day. Really, truly all day long. Um, so usually once a week there is acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And that usually involves more or less, well, at least where, where, we, where I worked, it was more, more or less the entire editorial department kind of sitting in a huge conference room and we all kind of put forth whatever we want to buy and there's this long list of people who are bringing up their books. And depending on how many people want to bring something up, you could be there all for half a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just for the first half. Usually acquisitions for us was always divided into first half, second half. First half was kind of the actual editorial part where we discussed the books. Second half was the financial details. Mm-hmm. So that could take forever. Um, and that's generally once a week. And even, but then there's like mini acquisitions meetings too, because before like big ed board, sometimes we'd have like mini ed board mm-hmm. where we would kind of strategize in like smaller groups about who to send a who to send a manuscript to for a second read uh what you want to kind of gather in terms of materials or whatever those kind of those and then Kelly and I have discussed things like sales conference before we've we discussed things like launch these are generally huge all-day meetings multi-day meetings really that are like three or four times a year but while you're working on a season's catalog, uh, your list of books, you are going to cover meetings. You are going to marketing meetings. Uh, generally, you're going to go to a cover meeting maybe once or twice a month. Uh, depending on how the meetings are divided, you're probably going to go to a marketing meeting at least once a month, maybe every week, depending on how big the book is you're working on. You... There are just so many meetings. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and keep in mind, too, the nature of publishing is that you're always working ahead. And so in any given day, you could have meetings, you know, that are much closer to the publication of your book. So, like, what are some that come later Cover design is usually a later meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, marketing, you know, sales, marketing, like publicity. Sales, yep. Yeah, that's generally so later. So you could be having some of those meetings for the 
the upcoming catalog that that's coming up next. And so the titles that are most likely to come out soon. And then in the same day, you could have a whole nother set of meetings to for the following titles, right. For the next season out. So editors are always holding like usually two to three seasons in their head at any time (laughs) and on their desk, working on various books at various stages of the process. I always used to joke that publishing is like time travel or, in fact, I never know what year it is because generally people in publishing work on their list about a year out. So as it is, we're coming up to the middle of July. So that's generally when they launch spring, summer 2017. Mm -hmm. But you have to think about it this way, too. So there's a lot of prep that goes in before you launch a book. Generally, you want to get a a book in a pretty good shape editorially before you launch it. There, you, maybe you want to get blurbs or this or that. You want to set up a book properly before you head into launch. So that can be anywhere from like three to six months after you acquire a book is when you mm-hmm. launch it for the following year. Mm-hmm. That's why a book can be published like 18 to 24 months after it's been acquired. So if I say I am an editor and I have found a book that I really like, and we'll just say it's like, I don't know, it's a fantasy novel, um, a dark fantasy novel, and I really, really like it. So I buy it, and generally buying can take, negotiations to buy a project can happen overnight, or it can kind of be this long, protracted, drawn-out process. Uh-huh. It all depends on the book. But say I like a book, and I'm able to actually buy said book by July. Launch for spring summer 2017 is like the following week. I wouldn't be launching that book. I'd probably have to consider, okay, what's the best season to be publishing this book in? And if I said it's a dark fantasy, it's probably better suited for fall or winter. So then I, you know, in fall and winter launch, fall launch is probably not until the end of the year, like October, November, and then winter launch wouldn't be until March of the following year. So you always have to be looking ahead when you're acquiring a book to kind of basically what's the best time, how to best position it. It's not just the editorial content of a book you're focused on, because my goodness, if the job of an editor was to simply just edit a book, it would be like the greatest job in the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's never going to be the case because you're, you're going to have to look at a book, each book like a project with its mm-hmm. own timeline, with its own deadlines, with its own dates. How are we going to best launch this product into the market? At which point? What's the best advantage? There's so many factors that go into that. And multiply that by however many books you have on your list for any given season. Now, some editors can have anywhere from like 10 to 15. And that's not counting the reprints. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, generally in trade publishing, you will see books often come out in hardcover first. Mm -hmm. And then... They come out in paperback, the reprint. So you have to manage that too. You have to launch your reprint. You have to launch. And because the market for hardcover and trade paperback is slightly different, you basically have to take it, your your book that you've launched once already, 
repackage it a bit mm-hmm. for the trade paperback audience and launch it again to an entirely different sales force. Yeah. That's why oftentimes the paperback cover will be different than the mm-hmm. hardcover because mm-hmm. they literally recover the books. Because in a trade paperback audience, they respond to different covers than a hardcover audience. And how do we know how the audience responds? That's just years of experience and data and what the sales is saying. And so, and the other thing about publishing is, is that no decision is made in a vacuum. Publishing makes decisions by committee. So for better or for worse, yes, for better or for worse. That's (laughs) definitely true. Sometimes you can't arrive on a consensus and it's, you're just at a stalemate until somebody can force their opinion Mm. through. And, you know, there can be conflict within house as to how to move forward or disagreements or somebody has one opinion, somebody has another one. I mean, that's essentially what happened to Wintersong. Um, marketing thought, hey, this would be great as a YA title. Editorial was like, we're not sure. Could, you know, it's adult and content. So those things, and nobody necessarily has the final say. Technically speaking... I had the final say because they asked me what my opinion was about it. But everyone has a different opinion because they come from different aspects of the publishing market. Mm -hmm. Sales will have a certain view. Marketing will have a certain view. Editorial will have a certain view. And editorial's opinion won't necessarily trump marketing or sales because, you know, somebody's artistic sensibility may not actually work best for the market. So it's kind of this balancing act that you always have to do with every single book. Now, in a perfect world, everybody's always aligned and, and publishing a book would be easy. But that's never the case because, as I said, no decision is made in a vacuum. Um, so that's kind of the editorial side. I used to always say that editorial was kind of the middleman. They're really project managers, editorial. Mm -hmm. That's the day job aspect of it. Anyway, during business hours between nine to five, you are a project manager. You are scheduling things. You're launching things. You're going to meetings. You're organizing all of your projects, figuring out timelines. And then after business hours is when you go home with your stack of manuscripts on your e-reader, I guess, Sometimes I tended to read submissions on e-readers and edit on paper. So I would take home stacks to edit at home. I mean, let's be real. The tote bag is alive and well in publishing. So I think you're not the only one. (laughs) Um, So that's when editing happens is on your own time at home when you're not going to be constantly interrupted by emails, by phone calls, by meetings, um, because gosh, if I could, you know, if I could come into the office and shut the door and read submissions all day, that would be kind of great, mm-hmm. but that doesn't happen. <laughs> no. I mean, the closest you're ever going to come to that, honestly, is when you're an intern. Yeah. yeah. Interns do a lot of reading. They do a lot of queries and, and they do a lot of reading. Um, They'll do a lot of envelope stuffing too, but <laughs> <laughs> and, and photocopying and yeah. But the closest I think you'll ever come in the industry to quote unquote getting paid to read or getting work experience to read is is in the internship phase. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
So if you want to talk about other departments in publishing, in the big five, you know, obviously you have a marketing department, Mm -hmm. publicity departments, sales departments, art department, production department, legal. Am I missing anything? No, I think that covers most of it. Sales, marketing, publicity, legal, art production accounting accounting <laughs> money yeah <laughs> i mean those are all the big ones i think and each of those departments in publishing will essentially be project managing their own list or books as well um mm-hmm. but editorial really is the middleman i think between all these departments they're always the editor is generally always going to be the person that relays the information from all the other pro- all the other departments to uh-huh. the agents and, and authors. So, in addition to doing the project management, they're also the messenger, which can also get kind of trying, <laughs> especially when the editor has to relay information that he or she knows that the author won't take very well. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's not, I mean... That's the thing is, I know sometimes I've had a writer friends who are just like, I don't know why my editor is doing this or saying that. And sometimes my response is, it may not be your editor's decision. Mm-hmm. It may have been handed down to your editor by their publisher, by their marketing de- lead, their whoever it is. That's It may not be what they want either, but it's kind of the general consensus that everybody else came to. Mm -hmm. It is somewhat democratic, so kind of the majority rules a bit in terms of any sort of business decision that gets made on publishing a book. So that is what it is. (laughs) Um, I mean, editorial is really the only department that I have worked in, aside Mm -hmm. from working at an agency. Uh, I don't know, Kelly, what is your day like in, in legal? Oh man. Yeah. This, this job, I'm fully immersed in the legal department at my last publishing job. Um, at my previous place of employment, I kind of straddled, I did some things for the editorial team and some things for the legal department. So it was a bit more hybrid, but in my current job, yeah, it's pretty much all legal all the time. And... I do a lot of research, (laughs) and um, I tell people no a lot, which (laughs) is really what contracts um, are all about, is telling people no. But a lot of times, you know, the legal department, um, and accounting too, because they're very closely tied. I work very closely with our accounting department in my current job, and... um, You know, it's just about making sure that everything is written down correctly in the contract, but then it's also our job to make sure that what is written in the contract is actually what happens, which is something that I think um, a lot of people don't necessarily expect out of the legal department, but when I kind of show up and I knock on their doors, I'm like, hey, by the way, you're supposed to be doing this according to this contract, and I've noticed that it hasn't been done, and so I'm here to remind you 
that we have to do this now. Um, Because it's not enough to just put it in the contract and then stick it in a drawer. You have to actually fulfill your contractual obligations. So if we say in the contract that we're going to do something, it's my job to make sure that those things get done. Um, So in my case, it's I, I don't necessarily work with departments as much as I work with individual editors. You know, I don't really attend a lot of meetings, um, but I work with individual editors on their individual projects as issues arise, essentially. And it's a lot of research. A lot of legal questions have multiple answers. And so (laughs) you need to find the correct answer for the specifics of the situation. So there's a lot of research that goes on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Long story short, publishing, all about meetings and just emails, emails and reading, meetings, emails and reading. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I, I will do anything to avoid the phone. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, and I think this is becoming more and more true. There, there is a lot of problem with email and email culture and email office culture. And it, it, I do find it really disruptive. I have not yet managed the the art of only looking at email at certain times. And I find that my email interrupts me a lot during the day. You know, I'll be working on something and then I'll get a new email and I'll read it and I'll stop what I was doing and work on the new thing that the email came through. But that happens every 20 minutes. And so <laughs> I have a constant state of like things in motion, but I still prefer it. phone calls. I think phone calls, I want to either speak to you in person, face to face, or I want to do it on email. I don't want to do a phone call in publishing. I don't mind phone calls. I don't like being cold called. Yeah. That's often what I don't like. And if I did, if I did get a phone call from an agent, (laughs) I, I had a handful of agents that I knew who pitched via the phone and I would generally take their phone calls because I knew that was their preferred method of pitching to me. And that was fine. <laughs> but often if I saw an agent call me, it's generally because there's a problem of some kind. <laughs> and the last thing I want to do is talk to said agent over the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, the honest truth is I feel, I, you know what, now that I think about it, I think my agent actually only really calls when I feel very strongly about something and Mm -hmm. she's going to, you know, basically be my advocate. So she's going to call, which is probably why as an editor, I rarely take phone calls if I can avoid it. Right, because it's so stressful, yeah. It is very stressful. So often my preferred mode was to schedule a phone call via email. Be mm. like, oh, I saw I missed a phone call from you, so... Here, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to talk about? Let's schedule a phone call, maybe like the next hour. And I can like mentally gird myself to like talk about it. I feel like the other problem in publishing with phone calls, with things of that nature, especially, you know, with authors or agents is that nine times out of 10, you cannot resolve the issue on the phone. Because what's going to happen is that the agent is going to call and say, here's the issue or here's, you know, why we're unhappy or here's our question. And then the editor will listen and say, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, yes, okay, great, I understand. And then the editor is going to say, I have to look into that for you and hang up the phone. (laughs) Because the editor probably either A, doesn't have that information or B, can't make that decision. And so... Because publishing decisions made by committee... 
Yeah, and so the editor is then going to have to go back to you at another time after conferring with all of her colleagues, which is another reason why I preferred email because, and I would always tell people this, especially with contract negotiations, I don't want to negotiate a contract over the phone. I don't want to misinterpret what it is that you think that you want. I don't want to, but a lot of agents will try to negotiate contracts on the phone. Um, And I always tell them, you know, even if even if you want to have this phone call, I'm going to need you to follow it up with an email of everything in writing that you want. Because yes, you I need and you know it's the same thing on the editorial side. If you have this phone call, then that then it's up to you to translate what the agent or the author has said to everyone else and hope that you're getting the gist of you know what the issue is and can resolve it correctly. If they email you, then you can forward that email and say, "Hey, everybody, please see below. This author has this concern. How can we address this to alleviate?" her worries and, you know, resolve this issue. And then you have it all in the person's own words and you know exactly what it is that they want. And so for, for things like that, I'm very pro email. The only time I really liked to get on the phone was often after an editorial letter has been written Mm -hmm. or a revise and revise and resubmit request has been written. So the thing about, at least for me, when I was writing editorial letters, it could get quite long, um, but I always felt that it was better conveyed in per- it over with my voice. Right. So if, if I wrote an editorial letter and I was talking about big themes and characterization mm. moments and specific things and I had questions, basically I just really wanted to get on the phone with the author to act as a sounding board, more or less. Mm-hmm. I would talk them through the editorial changes that, you know, I thought the book would should have. And if the author disagreed with me telling me over the phone, generally, if an editor is pointing something out to you, you don't have to listen to everything the editor says. But if they have an issue with something or something flags a concern for them, then it's it's probably best to talk about why that's causing a concern for the editor. And the author can explain it and then mm-hmm. write it in such a way that clarifies it if it's confusing or problematic or other things like that nature. And sort of the same thing with phone calls after I've, I've sent a revise and resubmit letter. to, And specifically, depending on whether or not my relationship was good with the agent, which is generally kind of the case. Like, I mean, I had lunches with these people yeah. all the time. So I would call them and say, look, I really liked this project, but these are the reasons I can't acquire it yet. Mm-hmm. And then I would kind of talk through more on a more slightly more business side. Like these are the things that I think it need that need to get done in order for it to become an attractive thing that my publishers, my bosses, and everybody else around me wants also wants on board. Mm-hmm. So situations like that, I, I like to get on the phone because you can't necessarily, because I'm always going to forget something if I'm, tr- or mm-hmm. if I'm, or I'm going to just write like a 500 page email or editorial letter. Mm-hmm. So I feel yeah. like it's much more efficient to get on the phone to discuss those things. I agree. And I do that too when I'm freelancing. Anytime I send an editorial letter, part of the package is always like a 15 minute phone call or Skype call or something just to touch base and be able to talk after you've read it, you know? So I I do think that that's important because I think too, 
like when you get an editorial letter, you can you read it and read it and read it, and you can kind of go like too deep into the letter. <laughs> Sometimes yes. the phone call can help pull you back out again. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and also talking through it, I mean, I I know when I got my editorial letter, my editor always offers, you know, here's the editorial letter. If you have any questions, you just want to talk, you know, let me know and we can schedule a phone call. And I have talked to my editor before about certain editorial changes, and it wasn't that I was upset with the changes that she had asked, but I just wanted to talk to somebody to get those ideas going. And just hearing someone's voice often helps that. And the same thing with book two that uh, I sent, <laughs> I had sent my editor this like unhinged synopsis because <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. And, but, you know, after that, my agent and my editor and I all got on the phone and we just sort of talked through things that I wanted to write about, that they were interested in seeing that, and it helped me kind of get a, or at least it just made me feel better, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like hearing their voice, because you can often look at a, a, a letter or, or something that's in written communication and it will come across as cold, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I know I have that problem. <laughs> I can come across as, well, I can come across as cold in person too, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't suffer fools very lightly and I don't really like feelings. Um, but <laughs> it, it helps to hear that, you know, your editors doesn't hate your book if they have mm-hmm. a bunch of criticisms. It's just that these are the thoughts that came to them while they were reading or editing your book. So that's kind of the phone call thing for me. But yeah, usually if, if I'm at the day job or if I'm just at the office during the day and I was answering emails or at a meeting, and often I won't get to a phone call because I am in a meeting all day or several, you know, so I come and I hated coming back to seeing a voicemail flashing like, oh no, <laughs> what is this? Is it a good or bad voicemail? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's kind of the day in the life. It, it the, the kind of the nice thing about working in publishing, I would say, is that there is no set schedule necessarily. Y- your day-to-day work will probably be different. Every, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to be the same exact routine every day. Now, like overall, over the course of the week, it may look pretty similar week to week because there's, you know, this meeting this week, there's that meeting this week, there's editorial every week, you know, all that sort of stuff, but the actual day-to-day job will vary more or less. And, you know, three times a week, sometimes I'd go out, like, basically, like, two to three times a week, I would have lunch lunch with agents. And it was kind of, it would be a mix, too, of agents I already knew that knew my taste and also trying to find new agents. And often what I did, generally, because most of the agents that were in New York City if I got a submission from them and I had to turn it down for whatever reason, generally I like to take the agent out to lunch afterwards to just talk about the project a little bit more and also to see what else they may have on their list. Even if this particular project didn't work for me, maybe they have something else on their list that would be more to my taste or whatever it is. So always talking to people. And maybe that's why I don't want to be on the phone because I'm just talking and talking and talking and talking and talking uh-huh. all day to everyone else. <laughs> words so many words so many words and many of us are introverts in publishing so it's it's hard for us 
We all like to have drinks and be social and then like disappear and not talk to each other for five days. <laughs> all right. So I don't know. Is there anything we didn't cover in terms of day-to-day publishing business? No, I mean, I think that's a pretty good window into the realities of it. You know, we're we're just here to dispel that myth that you're going to read books all day because that, <laughs> that is not true. Um, if you want to do that, just be an intern because mm-hmm, I read, mm-hmm. I definitely read Just be read independently wealthy and stay home and read. Just. Yeah, that's, that's true too. <laughs> that's my dream job. All right. So let's move on to our next segment then. Uh, mm-hmm. What have you been reading? I just wrapped up all the books that I was in the middle of last time. So I uh, had been reading this Maria V. Snyder healer series, and the final book was Taste of Darkness, and I did just finish that. It's really funny. I I love Maria V. Snyder. We have sang her praises on this podcast before, um, and... I gotta say, the final book in this series is really hand wavy. Like, it doesn't, <laughs> it does not make any sense to me. I just read it like two days ago and I couldn't tell you how they resolve the main conflict. They just like do somehow everything. <laughs> everything is Magic. just okay. Yeah, and then there's literally like a couple of paragraphs at the end of the book where there's still like some lingering problems and the characters are just like, this will probably just be fine because magic happens. Like, it's just really super hand-wavy, uh, which is funny because I think for the most part her, her books are really well plotted. Um, but I don't care. I read it and I enjoyed it thoroughly, even though <laughs> even though it was just kind of a bizarre blob of a book. I really, I just love it. I can't say anything bad about it because um, oh. I just so thoroughly enjoy it. I feel like the third books of all of her trilogies are kind of wackadoo. Mm-hmm. Like Fire Study was kind of wackadoo. Yeah, it was. The, the last book in the Glass trilogy was me just going, what is this? There's a <laughs> cult and body switching <laughs> and what? What? Um... So it kind of is a pattern for her. I mean, I love all of the books of hers that I've read. She's there's she's incredibly readable. She has really wonderful characterization, and she does romance very, very well. But sometimes, sometimes they're a little wackadoo. <laughs> Just kind of getting to the end, be like, hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it fits the mold in that <laughs> sense, which is. Which is fine. Um, And then I just got the notification from my library that um, one of my books was now in, and I'm actually trying to pull up the email now because I can't remember what it was. Oh, The Story Spinner by Becky Wallace. So I'm going to download that tonight, and we'll start reading that. Awesome. Yeah, what about you? Well, it's still the Beethoven biography. Well, yeah. (laughs) But aside from that, I um, at work during the at, at the day job, I uh, started to listen to My Lady Jane, which is oh yes, written by our pub call contributor Jody Meadows and Brody Ashton and Cynthia Hand. It is delightful. It sounds really delightful. <laughs> it is 
great. Uh, it is a, I don't know if you guys know the story of Lady Jane Grey. She was queen for nine days of England, kind of the post-Tudor era, right before Elizabeth I became queen. There's actually a really, really great movie that I was like obsessed with in the 90s, early 90s, late, maybe late 80s, early 90s. Just, I think it's called just Lady Jane with Helena Bonham Carter and Carrie Elwes <laughs> that I loved. Um, but anyway, so this is kind of an alternate version of that. And, um, it's just kind of very tongue in cheek. There have been mm-hmm. made comparisons made to The Princess Bride and the movie Lady Hawk, which here's another movie that I also really, really love. And I think those comparisons are actually pretty apt, but it is very delightful, very funny. There are times when I'm sitting at my desk and I'm just like chuckling to myself at my desk and my coworkers are just like, what's so funny? <laughs> so I'm like, nothing, it's fine. So I'm listening to that on audio at work and thoroughly enjoying that. And I also just got in from the library, A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab. Now, I actually got A Darker Shade of Magic last year on audio uh, from the library, but ultimately was either in a reading slump or something, but just never got to finish it. So I thought maybe I'll read it in print first to see how that goes. So I got that in from the library. And I should probably in it that probably will go much quicker than reading my Beethoven biography. So, <laughs> oh man, Zen, what are you working on? Nothing. That's not true. Yes, I mean yes, it is true, but it won't be true soon. Um, my friend uh, Chris and I. Chris is probably my oldest friend in the whole world. I've known him since childhood. Um, he and I had been lamenting recently that we are not writing as much as we should be and we both have projects that we want to work on but for whatever reason we're not prioritizing them and so we made a pact to send writing to one another every Monday and we're not not for the purposes of critique we're not offering any feedback there is no like read it and tell me what you think there's no like anything it is literally just a deadline you must send something into my inbox on monday <laughs> and and if not we will be very very mean to one another which we're good at because we've known each other for many years <laughs> <laughs> So it's purely about output and not so much about quality. Um, But I think I need that right now. So um, our first deadline is this coming Monday. And of course, right today, it is a Wednesday and I haven't yet started to write anything. So (laughs) (laughs) I have a few days left um, and I do plan to to do some work on my YA work in progress that I've talked about here before. So we'll see. Hopefully on the next podcast, I'll be able to tell you that I have actually done some work on something. Awesome. Yeah. And I assume you are still working or in the process of working on book number two. I am. And I'm making my way through my first past pages and lamenting the fact that I wrote a long book. (laughs) (sighs) So the thing is, and I have recommended this to people, read your first past page pages out loud this is the first time you see your your text laid out in book form and inevitably in the process something often there are typos or or words that or something that that got missed at the copy edit stage will make it into first pass and 
When you're reading something on a computer screen or even on paper, a lot of times your brain will correct typos or will switch out words or insert things to make things make sense, so you won't actually notice them. But when you read them out loud, it forces you to basically look at every single word of your book. Now, you know, so this is very useful in finding typos or skipped words, you know, if you've like forgot a the or of or whatever, you know, those are now made clear to you. And then, you know, when you read something out loud, you start to notice ticks in your own writing, your own writing quirks. Uh-huh. There are certain phrases that I use constantly and it's starting to bug me. <laughs> <laughs> there are, you know, just little things like that, that when you read something aloud, you start to notice because you're hearing your own words now, as opposed to just reading them. So it's slightly different. Um, and I pretty much pace my house while I do this. I like take chapters and I pace back and forth, um, and read aloud and I really get into it. Like I do all the voices, I act and I gesture and I, um, and I always have to make sure to kind of finish up before my partner gets home because (laughs) I mean, he knows what I'm doing. Like, you know, he's seen me kind of pace up and down my office and read my pages aloud, but like really getting into it, like acting it and like dramatically reading it is slightly different than just like reading my own words aloud when he's there. So I always have to kind of like, if I hear his car come up the driveway, then I'm like, okay, okay, I'm going to just finish up this chapter and I'm done for the night. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that, yes, aside from book two, I am working on reading through first pass. They are due back next week. So I'm pretty much trying to do a chunk every day, but you know, after a couple hours, I just, I've been talking and talking and dogging, so I can't keep going. Yeah. Yep. So that's me. And I've done, you know, like the most inconvenient time I have all these story ideas suddenly coming up to my head. I'm like, no, I don't have time for (laughs) you right now. I have to work on my book under contract. Yeah, this is your first contracted working on or writing a book while it's being contracted. So that's a first for you. I mean, I'm not terrified or anything. (laughs) You're a liar. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. The room is up in flames, but it's completely fine. Yeah, it's that cartoon of that dog with like a flaming room and (laughs) drinking coffee. It's fine. This is fine. Uh, Any off-menu recommendations? I do. I have become completely obsessed with the television show The (laughs) Hundred. I have seen one and a half seasons in three days. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it was (laughs) like once a month, my husband and I do um, our solo days, we call them, where the other parent takes the kid for the day. And we are just left alone in the house to do whatever we want or to go out. But a lot of times it's nice to just be in your own house and be by yourself. It's, oh, yeah. it's sometimes it's sometimes hard to like go out for an entire day um, and like not spend money and still <laughs> like be relaxed. So we kick the other person and the kid out. And so once a month we have a weekend where we trade that off. So his day was this past Saturday and my day was this past Sunday. 
And so I started watching it on Sunday thinking like, oh, I'm just going to watch one or two episodes because my friend Mallory has been telling me about this show and it's on the CW and she's like, I think you'd really like it. I know it's like a teen show and don't get me wrong. I am not above watching teen dramas or anything. <laughs> That's fine with me. But it just didn't look like my thing. It looked I don't know, like, like so many things in my life, somebody recommended something to me and I was just like, no, I don't think I'm going to like that. (laughs) (laughs) And I was wrong because I'm wrong about everything. Uh, to be honest, I had watched the first half of the pilot like two months ago and it got really bored and I just didn't even finish the first episode. But yeah, I got, I got way hooked into the hundred. And so I'm halfway through the second season now and it's on Netflix and then they only have seasons one and two, and season three isn't on Netflix yet, so I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I, I have to I have to get my fix, so I'm going to have to find it somewhere. <laughs> and I've been really, yeah, it's, like, it's, it's a teen show, so there's lots of pretty 20-somethings pretending to be teenagers, <laughs> and there's lots of making out, you know. I mean, every teen drama is pretty people with problems, so this is definitely pretty people with problems. Um, but it's also like part Battlestar Galactica, part Lost, and it's just my jam. I'm digging it. My favorite thing about it, actually, is that um, the character development is so authentic but happens so swiftly that my feelings about characters have changed not just once, but like three or four times (laughs) over the course of just one season. And none of it feels like fake like it all feels like really organic character development and these characters are making these choices and it's like one episode they're making choices that make me love them and the next I'm like you are dead to me and then they so redeem like real themselves. teenagers yeah pretty much <laughs> um so there's that for sure I've been obsessed with and then I'm also obsessed with another podcast which is Disney Princess Deathmatch and what is this? What is this? This is amazing. <laughs> this, this is Disney Princess Deathmatch. If you follow me on Twitter and have seen me talking about Disney princesses constantly later, that is because of this podcast. Um, it is a podcast where two best friends, Liz and Sarah, watch all of the official Disney princess movies. So they have to be included in like the official Disney princess line. So Mulan is included, even though she's not technically a princess because she's in the line and then other characters aren't because they're not in that official ranking for whatever reason. So they go by the list of official Disney princess, uh, Disney princesses. They watch each movie and then rank each princess on a scale of one to five, according to six criteria. And so the criteria is um, attitude, autonomy, arias, so their songs that they sing, their attire, uh, their animal companions, and the wild card category is how they would fare in the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) And so for um, for each episode of the podcast, they focus on one movie. And they, you know, talk through the beat by beat of the story and they, you know, hash out the whole thing. And then at the end of the episode, they assign their scores and they have a really active Twitter following and listener, um, you know, a listener base. And so they actually have an interactive spreadsheet on Google Docs that you can download and they have their scoring system. And then you can add your own individual scores underneath 
because you will differ from their scores because I love the hosts, but they get a little bit peculiar in their greetings at times. We all let our personal biases show through, you know? So well, um, I just it's a lot of fun. Because it's like something that's totally up my alley. <laughs> it's really great. It's Disney Princess Deathmatch. It's it's a ton of fun. I'm obsessed. Um, let's see. I also have a, another podcast, but I guess this is sort of related to my other off menu recommendation, which is Game of Thrones. So I pretty much <laughs> you got sucked back in. Oh, it's like that ex I should break up with, but it keeps promising that it will do better. And you know what? It actually has been doing better. So I'm a sucker and a weakling, and I'm like, fine, I'll take you back. It looks like you're making strides and you're improving. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> so I pretty much quit after season five. Now I actually really do like the show. I think it does pretty good job of adapting, but also transforming George R. R. Martin's work. I have read uh-huh. all of *A Song of Ice and Fire* that's out. Um, actually, I saw the TV show *Game of Thrones* first, and I—I I can't even remember. It must have been like Memorial Day weekend, and I was at Mark's parents' house, and they have HBO, which uh-huh. we did not. And I. And I, you know, I knew I had friends who really liked A Song of Ice and Fire, and they're now making a TV show of it. So I said, okay, I'm going to start watching. And I watched the whole season mm-hmm. in a day. like, And it's like 12 hours of straight television. And I loved it because, okay, spoiler, the hero dies. And it was mm-hmm. such a shock to me watching it that way because you were, I mean, I should have known because Ned was played by Sean Bean and Sean Bean dies in everything. Um, it, it, that was such an amazing revelation to me that he upended what we thought should happen, which is the heroes win Mm -hmm. and it, they don't. And I was like, this is great. So I went out and I bought the first book and I read it in like a day. And so I had made this pact with myself which didn't last very long, that I was going to wait to read the books until I'd seen the TV show, and that really didn't last long at all. And I just pretty much binged through all of A Song of Ice and Fire in about, I don't know, like a week, week and a half. So it went very quickly. And so I really did like the TV show. I would say that the first three seasons of Game of Thrones is pretty excellent. But they've been floundering in seasons four and five, partially because number of reasons. Like I felt like the characters were treading water. There wasn't a lot of growth and a lot of development in them. And that is partially to do with the fact that actually in book four, Feast of Crows, George R. R. Martin starts to get kind of more philosophical and less taught in his storytelling. And mm-hmm. He just keeps adding all these new characters, and we spend so much time in Dorne, which is like the most boring place in Westeros. And the the TV show suffered from that, too, because it just started to get mired. Plus, especially in season five, a lot of the, the TV shows had already caught up with a lot of the characters in terms of the book storyline, so they'd run out of story for quite a few of them, including Sansa. And Sansa is actually my favorite. Of course, this show yeah, has... Yeah, she was mine, too. Yeah, I know. To being on Team Sansa was very lonely for a very long time because nobody else was on Team Sansa until she started growing up. 
But um, what they did to Sansa, I just... I mean, the show has a deserved reputation for basically just being about boobs and objectification of women and sexual Mm -hmm. violence. And to some extent, I can deal with that. Um, But it it really started to cross a line for me in ways that I just didn't like and I found extremely uncomfortable. And especially giving Sansa fake Arya slash Jane Poole storyline, I was like, I'm done, I'm out, I don't want to watch this again. But then season Uh six had started and everybody's like, well, no, the women start coming into their own and having own agency and this and that. It's like, ugh, fine. (laughs) Watch it again, I guess. But it they were right. Like the Mm -hmm. this was the most emotionally satisfying season of Game of Thrones. And the reason I think it's actually the most emotionally satisfying is because it's actually the most conventional. Bad guys get their comeuppance. Um, you know, so it there's something really emotionally satisfying about this. Now, it's got its problems, and a lot of its problems kind of have to do with the fact that two of its leads can't act their ways out of paper bags. Uh, yeah, I'm going to confess something, you guys. I don't like either Jon Snow or Daenerys. I think they're kind of the worst. Daenerys, in particular, is kind of the worst white savior you can find in fiction. And as pretty as Amelia Clark is, she just doesn't sell Mother of Dragons to me. Mm. <laughs> she's just not scary enough. And and anytime she's like trying to be steely and you know, like I am, I I have dragons and I'm the Mother of Dragons and I I'm Daenerys Stormborn. Like it doesn't work for me because she kind of just goes bitch face. Uh. And there's kind of no depth or shade to that performance. And then there's. Kit Harrington as Jon Snow. Now, Jon Snow is dumb as a brick. I'm sorry, I can't get on board with a character who is just that dumb. Secondly, Jon Snow, Kit Harrington, only has two facial expressions, one of which is vaguely worried, the other one is slightly constipated. And that's it. <laughs> so I really have a hard time empathizing with these two characters. But a lot, a lot of the others I really love, and I just found it very, very satisfying, and I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about where the show might go, especially after the Winds of Winter episode. So there's that. And in my post-Game of Thrones, I need to read about it, I need to talk to other people about it, I discovered Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones. Now, I don't know if you guys know of the Nerdette podcast, um, but it's just basically two women, Greta Johnson and Trista Bobito, interviewing and talking about different geeky slash nerdy subjects. They often have authors on. They interview them. They talk about movies and pop culture and things like that. So they have kind of a spinoff podcast where the two of them recap Game of Thrones with Peter Sagal, who is the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Mm-hmm. So I've been thoroughly enjoying that. And I've been uh, kind of listening to those to kind of get my fix because it's another year. Yeah. And I was smug for a while because I had read the books and so I Mm -hmm. knew what was going to happen. But this is completely uncharted territory. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what happens? I don't know. I want to know. And I need to speculate yeah. with people. <laughs> yeah. I had read a couple of the books. I didn't read all of them. I think I read like two and a half of the books before the show came out. And then it was like, I meant to keep reading them, but I just never got around to it for whatever reason. And then when I was on maternity leave, David got super into it. And we actually bought the first two seasons. And uh, he you know, watched them. And I watched all of season one with him while I was on maternity leave. And then I started to watch season two and I just tapped out because it might've been like hormones because like for the first six months after having a kid, it's just hormone city. It's really crazy. And everything was horrible. (laughs) so, (laughs) So there was a lot of stuff that was like, just not, I was not processing things emotionally the way that I normally do. And so I don't know if it was just harder for me to watch that show than it would have been otherwise. I don't know. I haven't really tried it again to find out whether or not I'd like it now that I'm decidedly not pregnant or nursing or having any weird hormones in my body. Um, I do read Game of Thrones spoilers every single week because I know so many people who are um, fans of it. And I love... There's something that I really love about, like, fandom reactions to things. And when I am in the fandom, it's hard to appreciate the fandom's response because I am also having the response. <laughs> but with the, with the Game of Thrones, where I'm not in that fandom, and I get to see, like, compilations on BuzzFeed of everyone's tweets after they watch the show, or if I go on Twitter while it's airing and watch people live-tweet it, or my friends on Facebook who, you know, will, will talk about it on Facebook as they're watching, there's something amazing about that because they're... It is a show that, um, for better or worse, people do emotionally invest in. Mm -hmm. And I've said a lot recently that emotionally investing in television shows is like my number one hobby. It's my favorite thing to do. And so I love watching other people do that, too. And Game of Thrones does that to people. I know some really stoic human beings who are brought to their knees by Game of Thrones. (laughs) Yeah, I can't explain why it's hit the cultural zeitgeist the way it has. I mean, I've always been a fantasy reader, so I was kind of, you know, pre-invested in it a bit because I like fantasy. But there are a lot of people who love the show who don't re- who aren't really genre readers or don't really consume genre. So I find that really interesting. And I think ultimately it's because if you remove all of the fantasy trappings from Game of Thrones, it's really a show about politics and political decisions. So people who like, I don't know, The West Wing or even shows like The Sopranos with antiheroes or, um, you know, so it, it has that kind of like, or Breaking Bad, I'm thinking of the other one, which is like this really, really compelling people making good or bad, generally bad decisions <laughs> Um, with regards to politics. And I think that's kind of why, aside from the fact that there are dragons in it, it's kind of, because there's not a ton of magic, especially in the early couple of seasons of Game of Thrones, even in the books, magic kind of forms the backdrop of the story, but the real drama is political. It's, you know, between families, it's who's vying for the throne, um, And what I like, anyway, about the books was just this 
richness to the world building. There's just so much about it. So so many stories, so many characters, just this rich tapestry, This what it felt like this lived in history of a place. So there's that aspect. So I can understand why people like the books. And I do think that the first three... And he did write the first three pretty quickly, I think. They're pretty well-paced, thrillery type plots. Mm-hmm. But then... You know, those books got huge and he kind of started to wander and it the writing is not nearly as tight as it used to be. And as and so sometimes when I when I definitely when I was reading those books, because I read them all in a blur, so they often kind of run together for me. But definitely towards the end, like A Dance with Dragons, I was like, what? And like Arya's like in her own book. Like this, like her story feels totally unconnected to everything that's happening over here. Anytime he goes to Dorne, I am bored out of my mind. And there's like a lot of discussions about the nature of power and kingship and this and that, which is interesting only because I'm invested in the characters already. But it is just kind of sprawling, I think, almost beyond his control. And the thing is, he has two more books planned. Two. Two mm-hmm. more books planned. And each book is like a thousand pages long. I don't know if he knows how he's going to end it. I, th- I don't think he does. I think he knows what the ending is, but I don't think he knows how to get there. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. So, I, don't th- I don't think there's a plan. <laughs> well, he has said he's not a plotter. He is a pantser. Mm-hmm. Which I can see it. <laughs> I've had that problem where I'm like, that's where the ending is, but I don't know how to get there. So I I, I understand George R. R. Martin. Two books, though, I just, I was kind of like, and it takes you so long to write each one because they're thousand pages long. So we'll see. That's kind of why I'm really much more excited about the show because they already have the end game. They've been told what the end game is and they're going to get to it much quickly than he will. So. <laughs> That's it for me this week, then. That's all for this week. Next week, we will be continuing our Publishing 201 series with rejections. (laughs) Everyone's favorite topic. Oh, yeah. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at sjjones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or my website at penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye!